This is a Henley Intelligence Conversation. Welcome to this Henley Intelligence Conversation. My name is Gareth Armstrong. It's great to be with you today. Ashney, your title is Group Talent Manager, author, speaker, and coach. Before we go to the Group Talent Manager, which I think maybe we have an idea on, this author, speaker, coach thing, what is that all about? It just makes me sound very impressive. (laughs) It does. It certainly does. So author in terms of, I've written a book recently that was published. The book is called Succession Management, Definite Do's and Detrimental Don'ts. Detrimental Don'ts, interesting. So the book is based on my experience in the field of talent management Mm -hmm. and the years I've actually learned of things that I should be doing and shouldn't be doing when it comes to succession management. Sounds like a good book, a good read. When you say years of experience, what, what I have here is I've got Head of Talent Management at Nedbank. That was for seven years. We've got Senior HR Manager and then Group Specialist Talent Manager at ABSA. That was another four or five years. Then you went into Sun International and you've, you've moved into the position of being a Group Talent Manager there. That's been almost six, seven years at Sun International. That's a fair bit of experience. How have you experienced that, that rise and that journey? It's been an awesome time. So I think for me, it's been an incredible opportunity to try different things. So even though my my title says Group Talent Manager, I have done such interesting thing under that umbrella of that title in terms of wellness and uh, CSI, Triple BE, transformation. So it's quite an all-encompassing title, Mm. Talent Management, which is actually kept me out of mischief and has allowed me to learn new things, try out new experiences. But I think most important of all is to integrate the information Mm. from very different fields and functional areas into a coherent whole. And I think that for me was the most amazing thing of being here in this role. Can we can we roll back time a little bit? Let, let's push the clock mm. hands back. And uh, why why talent management? Why the the field of human resources? Why people? So as long as I can remember, I've had a passion for people. My okay. initial view was going into clinical psychology. Okay, interesting. And then I at the I'd completed my honors and I was not selected for certain reasons for the clinical program. Okay. And then faith had it that I had moved to Johannesburg and worked for Spornet. Okay. In the field of assessment. And then I realized very quickly that my studies was not aligned to what the world of work was. Mm. So I did a further study in terms of human resources management and found that I actually enjoyed it much more than if I had gone into clinical psychology. Mm. And what I had found as well is that I had had a love for learning new theories and I'd studied further in terms of different fields in human resources, in terms of people. And as I learned, I realized that I'll have this natural knack for optimizing potential and accessing potential. Okay. And that led me down the lane to talent management. How did that that knack manifest itself? So uh, I think often we use phrases and they're important phrases so that they help people understand where we mm. want to position ourselves. But you said you've got a, a passion for people. How did that manifest itself? What said this is what I want to be doing with my time? So in my field of assessment, I had an opportunity to assess a lot of people, psychometrically assess people, and I'm a qualified 
psychometrist. So it allowed me to assess people, give them feedback. And as I gave people feedback, a lot of their challenges was about similar things in terms of their careers. They were feeling stuck. They weren't quite sure what their strengths and development areas were. And what happened over time is I became quite natural in not only giving feedback, but also offering advice. And that led to almost a coaching role where I had the ability then to speak to people, listen to what they were not saying. A lot of the times when people come for assessment, they already know the answer to it. They're just looking for validation and confirmation. So it gave me a nice insight to understand people better in terms of what they were thinking, being able to listen to what they were not saying and understanding what they were looking for. A Simon Sinek quote which says uh, the job of a leader is not to understand what is being asked but why the question is being asked and I think that's what I'm hearing you say here especially in what isn't being said that's quite a rare talent I think what I like about it is over time I realize people always occur in a context Mm. that you cannot generalize and stereotype people. You need to understand them better by walking in their shoes. And every single person I've met, irrespective of what their role is in the organization or what field they're in, each one has a very unique story. And by listening to that story, you get to understand the individual at a much deeper level than making assumptions what their job title says about them or what, you know, what possessions they have. It's all very superficial. But if you take the time to actually listen, there's a lot of values that they talk about in, in the general conversation with you. They'll talk about what they like, what they dislike, their opinions about the world. And once you understand the individual at a deeper level, it's easier to build a connection with them. Well, connection, but then it's, if I'm going to be perhaps crude and mm. go back to the bottom line, mm. it's much easier to get the best out of them, isn't it? Exactly. I'm concerned, though, that there seems to be, and it's probably a growing tension that exists between your role and the the mandate given by a board of, of directors or, or, or stakeholders like shareholders to build a organization that is very systemized, very perhaps industrialized, produces a, a profit, but often doesn't take into account what you're describing, which is that people are, are different, unique, and complex. How do you deal with that tension? So for me, it's not a tension at all. They okay. both are not mutually exclusive. And I think that's what I love about my role because I look at the picture holistically and I look at the environment, I look at the external environment. And over time, organizations are moving more to the uh, industrial revolution, which means there's a bigger change in terms of how they should be defined. There's a greater focus in terms of looking at organizations from a social enterprise perspective, not only about the bottom line and revenue, but what is the role that organizations can play in contributing to the community? You know, looking at their stakeholders far wider from just the shareholders to actually people in the communities in which they operate. So for me, if you actually understand your, not only your internal employees, but your stakeholders in a bigger context, it actually works very well because Mm. you string a very coherent narrative together to say that when you treat people irrespective if they work for you or they outside with the same sort of respect and understanding you actually get much more in terms of what you've invested so you've said it's not a tension which is fantastic mm. to hear i'm interested to explore that i mean tensions tension can be a good thing it can also be a a, a negative thing well, your experience is there tension when it comes to this multi-generational millennial mindset and what the expectations are on a senior level 
I think the whole thing about the generational differences is basically the time in which each generation is born. So the context in which they understand presently the economic situation, the societal pressures, etc. And obviously, based on when you were born and how you grew up, the values of that time defines what's important to you. And for me, specifically, people are people. Mm. There is basic general needs that people need from a physical, mental, emotional perspective. But at the same time, when it comes to the field of work, how we operate and what we look for from a benefits perspective might be very different. So there's definitely going to be a change in terms of the millennials, in terms of what they want out of the work. So the older generations were more stable in terms of one employer for life. And then as you moved on to the X generation where there was more ability to actually look at different organizations and move around. But as you go to the other generations, you feel there's less reliance on big corporates and actually to act, to develop a more entrepreneurial spirit and to say, why can't we start our own businesses? Mm. And most of the millennials have come into contact. Everyone's talking about what business they can start. No one's talking about putting their CV together and applying for a bursary and going to a big organization. Mm. It's about seeing all these people, especially in terms of Google, etc., and saying in social media, there's all these icons, young people that have actually been very successful. How do we actually emulate them? So for me, if you do have those millennials that make it into the corporate, it's actually a good thing because organizations need to reorganize themselves. They need to look at their image in terms of what their new clientele is looking for, which is your future generation. So having that assortment of different generations is a good thing for organizations in my mind. Uh, have you been able to facilitate those kinds of sessions? Is this something that you are doing on an ongoing basis? And just some insights hmm. on what, what you're discovering there. So I think what's important is we have more in common than different. Hmm. And there's definitely strength in diversity in terms of views. And recently I had a very interesting quote where they said, if two people agree, one person's unnecessary. Okay, and I thought about that and I said, very interesting because you want, if you look at what's going to happen in the future, no one can really decide what the future holds. You need that difference. You need that diversity to actually give you an edge. So when you hack, uh, when you sit in a room with different people with different views, etc., and you actually listening to them, if you listen behind what they're saying and not the obvious things, you will say that each one has a story to tell. And how do you actually then take each of those stories and create a solution that actually puts you in advance from your competitors? And what I found is if you listen, irrespective of what level the individual is, in my work, I've had the privilege to work a lot with the unions. And when you listen to the voice of the unions, and you take away all the other prejudice and ah, oh, they just the they just the unions, etc. But if you listen to what they're saying and what they're not saying, there's actually a lot of validity there in terms of their fears and their concerns. And often they echo the voices of many South Africans outside your organization. So you have to be very comfortable and be able to listen to what they're saying and saying, is there any validity and how do I act on it? So I think that's important from a diversity perspective. It certainly is. Let's flip this conversation on its head for a moment, if we mm -hmm. can. You're a coach, hmm. and inside of every coach is a teacher. Please teach me 
let's just quickly use this as a, a semi-masterclass of sorts. How do I hear what people aren't saying? How do I hear what people really are saying? Are there questions that I need to be asking myself? Is there a particular approach to this? What, what, what's the formula? What, what's the process that needs to be applied to be able to hear what isn't being said? A, lo- a lot of it is about listening as the basis. And or listening with everything, though. Yes, I think I think that's yes. what I'm. It's about attention. Yeah, attention. Okay, yes. that's a that's a different yes. different so, take on it. Exactly. Mm. So it's body language. It's about especially body language. It's tone of voice mm. in the way they get excited about things, and the tone of voice increases. You can actually look at body language when they're happy with the decision. They you know they sit forward or they shrug away from a decision and they go back on their chair mm. you can look at how they actually interact with other people in the room so if they're buying into something you have to say a quick glance at one of their colleagues will tell you whether they're supporting you or whether they're not really with you and the, uh, the, i think people can read too much into something i think the main thing is about calibration so firstly you get to know people you don't just walk into a room of strangers and start making assumptions. That's the biggest thing you should not be doing. Mm. It's about over time understanding these individuals that we're talking about, being able to calibrate what is the normal for them. And when they're out of sync of the normal, those are your telltale signs of what's not right. So that's what you pay attention to. You've spoken about body language and there's a warning there. Don't overread, calibrate first. What else do we, do we apply to the, the formula or process for hearing what isn't said? For me, generally, I stick to very generic questions. How are you doing today? Or, you know, what's happening in your life? Or how's your family doing? Because from their response, you can already establish a mood. If the person's having a good day, bad day, based on how long their response is or whether it's a very short and dismissive tone. Mm. From that, you already surmise these are the individuals that don't really want to be here today. So you work from that and you ask throughout the day, those are the individuals you pay more attention to, to see what's going on. How do you actually draw them into the conversation? Whereas everyone else, you would say, are there any questions? You would turn to that individual and say, Would you like to contribute something? Mm. It forces them to be present. So there's little things you can actually do to ensure that your audience or your members of a meeting is very engaged, very involved in what you're doing by taking cognizance of where every single person is in the room. It's very tiring, extremely tiring. But if you want to be effective and you want to make sure that you're creating that inclusive environment for everyone to feel from a diversity perspective, You actually need to make the effort. You have to connect with every single person in the room. You're giving people real time. I think there's a key lesson in all of that. Over the the many years of experience that you've had in this field, what are those one or two true norths, those things that you keep on returning to that help you make decisions, whether dealing in the world of CSI or in disciplinary hearings with someone? What is, what is that thing that you keep on returning to that you've come to understand through your experience? Always prepare for turbulence. So no matter the best plan you can actually have designed and conceptualize, there will always be a spanner in the works. Always. Always. Okay. So when you've agreed that as your first premise or principle, when things happen, and I've been fortunate in that I've been in many group roles, 
And in a group role, what happens is you usually develop policy processes and then you would implement and basically train your, your users of whatever you're doing, line managers or HR people, etc. So a lot of the time it's organization-wide projects. And what you find is you have to allow for human error. You mm. have to make sure that no matter what deadline you give, people are always going to be late. So there's certain givens you realize. And when it happens, you don't get cross and throw your toys out of the cot. Mm. You actually say, this is human nature. How do we work around it? So my true north has been be flexible. Okay, be flexible and make sure that you've built some form of spanner into the works. Exactly. So I build it in my plan, my initial plan. I always include extra time for people not doing the things that they were supposed to mm. or things going wrong. And what I find, it actually works out very well because you must be flexible on the small things and be rigid on the big principles. Sure. You can't be rigid on everything. Mm. And if you give people an opportunity and what happens usually is when they say, can I please have an extra week? I haven't had time to do this. And you say, sure, not a problem. You also build that relationship with that individual because they feel that you've heard them, you've listened to their concerns, and you're actually making allowance, and they won't do it again. They're actually, you've built that relationship for life. What I hear you saying and potentially not saying <laughs> <laughs> um, is what you're also getting out of a person that feels like they are heard because they are mm. actually being heard mm. is you're going to get higher engagement you're going to get more commitments in future there's going that relationship is not just about a buddy buddy relationship and i don't think that's what you're saying no it's rather not. what you're saying here is you're going to get more mm, exactly every time exactly let's change tack a little if we can again mm. <laughs> and imagine uh, we're sitting around a table with a group of hr practitioners and there's something on the horizon that you've seen that you want to warn us about what is that thing? I think about probably it would be agility. Okay. That as, as HR people, we need to learn to be more agile and step out of the silos. In the new world of work, it's all about integration. It's all about collaboration. It's about being borderless. And the traditional HR has always been work in a box. You okay. know, you're the ER person. So if there's any CCMA cases, you do that. And the L&D person, you focus on the development of your people. Mm. And that has been a luxury we can no longer afford. So in the future is, how do I actually step out and serve a bigger purpose? The work might not be in my specific field. It might be a project-based role in which I need to forget what I learned and use maybe 10% of what I know and learn new skills. And the ability to be agile and adaptable, to actually take on much more without going back into your box, that's what the future holds. The future also seems to hold artificial intelligence and robotics and machine learning and all of these things that lots of people are talking about. And to a large extent, we we just don't know and we, we're not going to understand because it just feels so much bigger than us. What are your thoughts on these impending dooms or perhaps saviors and very interesting turns of events? There's a futurist, I think it's Alvin Toffler, that talks about the illiterate of the future is not going to be people who can't read or write, mm. but people who can't learn and unlearn and relearn. Mm. And that's what it's going to be. So AI and the information technology, I think it's a blessing. 
recently I've been paying more attention in terms of what does this mean for us as as people, as employees, as organizations. And I've seen some quite insightful and enlightening videos on my LinkedIn social network. There's always people posting interesting finds. And for me recently, I saw one of the glasses that was developed that had given someone using AI technology that has given someone sight where he saw his friend for the first time Mm. ever. And for me, that it almost draws on my heartstrings because at the end of the day, when you think AI, the the first thing people think, oh, my job's getting stolen. A threat, yes. Yes. But for me, I think about what amazing opportunity to if we had to use it to announce the human experience and use it from a disability perspective, et cetera, to give people a greater meaning in their life. That for me is important. Mm. And there was this other lovely um, clip where they had, they showed the children in colder countries like Tibet, et cetera. There's a huge um, rate of mortality for these kids because it's so cold and premature children never really make it. Oh, wow. And what they've done is develop this wonderful blanket that covers them and keeps body heat. And I thought, wow, that's a wonderful, interesting development. Mm. So I think for the many people that are skeptical about the future, there's a lot of optimists that can look at the blessings in terms of AI and say, how can we use this? How can we work with it rather than be threatened by it? I appreciate your balancing me out because I'm a little worried. <laughs> it's probably because I watch too many movies like Terminator <laughs> and that's the wrong thing to be doing. Thank you for that. Uh, can we talk a little bit about your book and your your specific area of focus that you've chosen? So since I've been in talent management for the last odd 20 years and from the time I actually got into the field, it was right at the fledgling stage where the war for talent, McKinsey's paper had come out. People were worried. What does this mean? Are we losing talent, etc.? And I was appointed as one of those talent managers at NetBank. And there wasn't a lot of material. Google wasn't that pervasive in organizations. We didn't know what it meant. How do you identify this thing called talent? What does it mean? What Mm. do you do with it? So for me, it was a wonderful journey with the development of talent management as a competency and a functional area in South Africa. I kind of grew with it. Okay. And part of my role in both NetBank and APSA was looking after executive succession planning. So I've been fully involved with the processes in terms of what you should do and shouldn't do. And now in Sun International, I have a similar role looking after executive succession planning, but also looking after succession planning for key critical roles. And what I realized, last year I spoke at a conference and the conference was to HR people. And the feedback I got from that conference was, you know so much about succession and there isn't anywhere that people tell us the stuff. Mm. Would you? And I was approached by Knowledge Resources, who's also a publisher, and they said, would you like to write a book on it? Now, at the same time, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Oh, yeah. So when you have children, you can kind of reflect on life and your value and your contribution. And the question I kept asking myself is, what is the legacy that I'm going to leave? What is my contribution to society apart from being an employee for the rest of my life? Mm. So when they asked me, do you want to write this book? I saw it as a wonderful opportunity because ironically, from a succession perspective, I'm actually handing over the knowledge I've acquired through the years in different organizations and actually giving it to the HR people. It's so, it's so interesting what you describe here. I, I learned, how many years ago was it? It was quite early on in my 
career and journey, this model, which was called the leadership impact model. It's a three-tiered approach to moving from a point of, let's call it entry-level leadership into high-impact leadership. And then at that point, ordinarily at least, you'd probably be pulled into another role uh, as a result of this impact that you're creating. But the, the first tier is acceptance. The second tier is credibility. And the third tier, which is very interesting, is legacy. And so what often happens in in many journeys is we get stuck on the first two. And so all about gathering credentials and plaudits and all of these things to ourselves. But what we don't do and what you have done, certainly in your book and in many other instances, I'm certain, is you went to the third tier, which is the the uh, really closes the, the loop and allows you to to then flow upwards, which is um, legacy. What are you leaving behind? What are you actually imparting? What impact are you having? And it's only when you think of it as legacy and not impact that you can you can actually leave a legacy because legacy is all about others. Mm. It's about impacting the, or the opportunity to give others. And I think that's part of a succession journey is the ability to give and give and give and then rise because you're giving. You're the expert, though. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you've you've summarized it so nicely. Oh, good. It's exactly that. It's about how do you leave a legacy? Because a lot of the times, it's not what's in it for me. You would have retired. You would have left the organization. But the name in which you left behind and the people who actually succeed you, they are actually a testimony whether you've actually developed them properly what are the resources you've given them? What are the skills you've given them to make sure that they're even more successful than you were? And I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is there's an, a totally other side of succession that no one really sees. Okay. And those are the challenges of succession. And when I looked at the last Employment Equity Commission report, for top management and senior management, it's still predominantly white males mm. and not truly reflective of society. And you think, why is this so? Why aren't more black people succeeding to s senior roles? And, and there are often narratives attached to that, which are, it's almost pseudoscience-like. It's not real. I, I'm fascinated. You've, you've hooked <laughs> me because I'm really interested in finding out what the real views are behind that exact question. So I think the important thing is it's not a logical process like all other HR processes where there's recruitment, there's a vacancy, find someone suitable and fill it. Mm. There is so many steps in it that you can go wrong from the time you're identifying people. Even there, in terms of identifying people, are you identifying people to fit a particular role with requirements or are you identifying people to be another you. Mm. So what is actually the requirements of the role? And a lot of times organizations get it wrong. They look like for like and don't look at how the requirements of the role has changed. And especially now going forward with, we spoke about earlier on about the fourth revolution, etc. The requirements are going to continuously change. So you don't have the luxury of choosing like for like. You have to almost step out of your role and say, what is this job going to look like in the future? Exactly. Is it even going to exist? Yeah. There might be a different role. There might be an amalgamation of roles. For that, what would, what would the type of person I need for, to fit that role? What are the sort of leaders I need? Previously, if you think about the old leadership models, everything was about the leader being the all-knowing of everything mm. and almost, you know, the wise seer that imparts knowledge and wisdom. And going forward, the leader's role is more of 
a networker, a person to lead a very collaborative team. So when you're looking for someone to succeed that leader's role, the skill sets you're looking from a digital perspective, is that person digitally savvy in Mm -hmm. terms of navigating the future world? You have to look at that. So a lot of times the first step where succession fails is they identify the wrong individual for the role. What it says to me is that we're looking at skill rather than ability or talent. And I don't know if that's exactly. fair enough to say, but then it, it changes your role. Suddenly you, you are, you're putting, you're, you're a bricklayer mm. instead of a talent manager or, mm. or out there searching for someone that, that's truly remarkable and going to make something change. I hope I haven't diminished um, <laughs> anyone's roles uh, as they're listening to this, but it, it can be like that if you're not looking ahead, if you're exactly. not being strategic about your decision making, then it, it's a hard pull to swallow, but potentially you are just a bricklayer. Mm. So given what we were talking about earlier on, the fear of AI coming in and robots, etc., you cannot be in that position where you have one skill. So f- from a succession perspective, if you want to get ahead in Henley, it's basically how do you make yourself relevant all of the time? Mm. It puts additional pressure on you because if you know the future is not about working in one organization, but almost being able to rise out of the organization and cross-calibrate with other organizations, see the bigger picture. So the, the narrative for me presently is I'm not working for Sun International. I'm working for South Africa. Sun International is part of the work that I do. Mm. And if you see it, that it changes your perspective in life in terms of your contribution. And what it does, it takes you out of the box in which is your job and says, what are the other skills that you can develop that you have not potentially developed that can make you relevant going forward? Mm. And those are the meta skills. Like I went last year, I learned, went on a gamification course. Very interested in gamification because I said, the old school of sitting in a classroom and doing learning and development is very outdated. People want to learn through fun, through laughter, through entertainment. Very practical exactly. application. Yeah. And how do you use that? So I looked, I take gamification, the things I've learned in gamification, and I adapt it to my HR processes. So the ability to string along seemingly unrelated skills into your your work repertoire is very important. By the way, to all of those who are listening and are desperately grabbing for your phones and typing to Google what gamification is, it is the the very thing that makes you hooked to those games that are on your cell phone. So that's part of gamification, but it's so much more. It's the ability to get people to engage on a much deeper level with what they're doing. Is that a good summary? Very good summary. Okay, I'm glad. (laughs) I'm glad. As we wind down the conversation, I wonder if there is a a story or two that you can share, just of maybe some naivety that you experienced early on in your career or high impact moment for you in your career that you will never forget that will stand the test of time and take you forward. That is such a difficult question, really it is. One of the moments, not the moment, but one of the moments is um, I told you earlier on that I was involved with um, corporate social responsibility. And uh, are you familiar with the Partner for Possibility program? Partners for Possibility, that is that is with for, teaching principles? Yes, yes, that's with Dr. Louise Rain who started yes. it. So seven years ago when she started the program, she went around looking for business leaders to partner with principals. And I was one of the the, the first to actually go on that program. Okay, lovely. And for me, it was almost a light switched on. 
when I talk about what can I do for South Africa, what can I do, when you start listening to not only the challenges that the principal sits with at the school, but you see the children and you realize I've never had, I didn't have a private school education. It was just a normal education. But I was still 10 times, 100 times more blessed than the kids today in a primary school mm. where I had taken for granted, for example, the project that we had uh, decided to do for the year is that those kids had no after-school activity. They, they'd never played soccer or netball or any of those sports. They didn't know what that was. They came to school, they had their lunch, they time for the taxis to come pick them up and they would go home. And they never had the privilege of knowing what a social was, mm. where you would sing and dance, etc. And when she said to me, the principal said to me, you know, I want to actually introduce this to the school. So that was the project we worked on the year. And you would think, oh, easy, you know, we just get kids together and put together a play or something. But the challenges were much more profound because firstly, you had to organize the whole, all the taxis to come at a different time to pick up. Because you kept the children longer in school, you need to suddenly provide a meal. You had to get special um, permission from the school's governing body. Mm. You needed to sell it to the ch to the teachers, to the children, the teachers. You had to bring them on board. So what I had done is I had facilitated a workshop with the teachers to say, if we did this, what are the risks? What are the mitigating factors? What are the solutions we would address? So I had all the primary school teachers sitting in the classroom and I was asking very basic questions, but they looked at me with big eyes like, wow, you know, I would never have come up with this ourselves. You mm. know, someone had come and given us this gift. And for me, that was the most humbling experience because when you work in corporates, you do this on a daily basis. You take for granted what you do as part of your profession. And when you take it out of that context to an environment where really requires and needs and appreciates your skill, it is such a humbling experience. Mm. So for me, that is the one thing in my career I will carry forth. Well, I've certainly been enriched by this conversation. I know those who are listening have been enriched by this conversation. Ashley, thank you for coming and sharing your insights and expertise with us here on Henley Intelligence. We're very grateful. Thank you, Gareth. This was most insightful. That is all we have time for today. If you would like to have more insights like these, head over to henleysa.ac.za and you'll find more Henley Intelligence conversations Find more Henley Intelligence on our Henley Africa social media platforms.